The signature quality of our very best schools is coherent, said Dr. Justin Reich. He's our guest on the Getting Smart podcast today. I think uh, of coherence as where everything works together uh, to support powerful learning experiences. It's where goals and tools and practices, structure, schedule, systems, um, all are in sync and are relevant to their community. I first experienced this as a big aha when I walked into High Tech High and uh, saw what kids were doing and saw that everything seemed beautifully to work together for teachers and kids. I think there's two pathways to coherence. One of them is invitational leadership. It's the kind of leadership that Larry Rosenstock exhibited at High Tech High, where you, you create a, a beautiful model, a vision, and you invite people into that model. The second is transformational leadership. It's where you may uh, in, inherit or gain responsibility for often a geography, a school, or a, um, a school district. And the task is to take them from incoherence uh, to coherence. Um, Dr. Reich said, uh, bringing people together around ideas they care about, starting with understanding, honor and respecting what people have already accomplished, and then helping them come together around ideas that will take them forward. That's transformational leadership. We're going to talk to, uh, to Justin about that today. Justin is a um, professor at MIT. He's the executive director of the MIT Teaching Systems Lab. He has a great new book coming out called Iterate, The Secret to Innovation in Schools. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for having me, Tom. Justin, do you, do you, first of all, do you buy that, that differentiation between invitational leadership, what new school, new program people can do, and transform, transformational leadership? Are those yes, different it's, jobs? It's much easier to get everybody on the same page if before they all show up, you write the page and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> if you want to come do it with me. Um, I, I do this exercise where uh, we, we once in, invented this card game called Committee of N, um, where there was kind of like a deck of sort of educational tarot cards that had like a bunch of educational values on it. And you would deal a small handful of these values to, to students, pre-service teachers, and you'd say, build a classroom that connects personalized learning and uh, hybrid learning and uh, teacher autonomy. Um, or build a, you know, a, a, a school schedule that connects you know, behaviorism and um, you know, uh, high, high test scores and um, assimilating immigrants, um, you know, all of which are sort of historical purposes of schools that we've shuffled through. Um, and, you know, students start to realize that like, oh, some of these values fit together really nicely and some of them don't fit together at all. And one observation I make is that, you know, some of our students go to local charter schools in Cambridge and Boston that were designed around a very small set of values where everyone agrees on the values and they're all there. And then we send others of our students to Cambridge, Ringe, and Latin, um, which has been a high school for 150 years in one form or another. And American society has just been piling values and piling goals on top of that school. Um, and so, yeah, you know, in both places, we ideally would find ways of creating coherence, but it's a very different journey when you show up for Cambridge, Ringe, and Latin than when you show up at a charter school. Um, Justin, this reminded me that it's interesting that like like a charter school typically has a nonprofit governing board that like teachers and students was recruited around the mission. So you have mission focused, sustainable leadership and a school board by definition is is elected to represent a community comes and goes and may sort of recreate that mission. So there 
they're very different animals from governance on up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the interesting thing, though, is that there there are still some parts of the journey towards coherence that are going to be similar. Um, if you want a new idea to happen in either of those places, you know, because, because Larry Rosenstock at High Tech High and all those other great people, they didn't get all the answers correct on the first day they started. And so they're still negotiating with their staff to say, let's try to implement um, these new things. Here's an interesting example of that. So even if you're in an invitational setting, and as you suggested, maybe you're a few years in, there's a difference. Uh, there's two forms of coherence. I think there's a there's a generative coherence, one that invites interaction across, you know, node to center, um, like Larry has done at Itech High, or like Debbie Meyer did it at at, uh, at, at uh, Mission School in Boston, where you sort of recreating coherence every week around the faculty table. And there's oppressive coherence, where it's sort of completely top down. There's some charter schools in New York that that might qualify for oppressive coherence. Right. And so I, I think different people try to um, get to and maintain coherence in in different ways. I think you and I would argue that that a generative coherence, one where you're inviting um, people to help recreate that system in a dynamic way is a lot more sustainable. Right. And a crucial theme of the book is if you're in a place where, you know, in a geography, <laughs> schools defined as geography, there's almost no way to create coherence except through that approach that that brings people together because teachers have such incredible capacity to um, to make new innovations go away or to participate in top-down directives in only the most minimal compliance-oriented kinds of ways. Quick, uh, quick sidebar here. Um, your book says it's about innovation, but I think it's a, there's a mixture of improvement and innovation. Do you, do you get hung up like I do on on the difference between improvement and innovation? Do, do they require different approaches, different agreements, not too much? I mean, the, 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 a lot of what I learned in the book was from spending 15 or so years trying to help schools implement education technology, which I think a lot of schools were really experiencing and hoping would be something around innovation, which would take us from where we are to somewhere really different. You know, and in the vast majority of cir- in a lot of circumstances, it did nothing where it had benefits. Uh, most of those benefits would probably what you would call improvement, which is taking the existing system and gaining some efficiencies here or there. Um, I, you know, I but I'm a big believer in continuous improvement. I think there's very I think there's very little research evidence that we have that says that schools can really quickly get to big changes, get to the next level of work. My colleague Ken Katinger says that that step change is what um, continuous improvement over 25 years looks like. Um, you know, if you if you pan back, it can look big, but if you zoom in, um, it's lots of little changes because of the natures of our schools, because of how how interconnected and and how delicately balanced our interests are and stakeholders are in school. Um, I guess that this is part of why I'm a big fan of, of the potential of new school development because it, you know, new schools are this unique opportunity to take a bundle of ideas and freshly create a, a, a coherent model where, where you where you're hoping for real step function um, innovation, right? Not not just iterative, but uh, uh, step function, um, and that's just hard to do in an existing system. 
Yes, it's much harder. It's much harder work when when everything's already there. Um, you know, new schools often have the advantage of of being of not being asked to serve everyone in the community in equal ways. You know, a lot of times our comprehensive schools. Uh, we say, look, <laughs> you really need to be able to um, do right by all comers. Yeah. Um, and that's a bigger challenge than, man, it would be great if you could just help the students who are really fired up about projects-based learning or really need some more um, kind of uh, kind of structure in their lives or, or other things like that. Right. Um, all right. Let's dive into the core insight in your book is the cycle of experiment and peer learning. Um Where'd that come from? Well, one of my favorite stories is I was uh, doing a bunch of school visits trying to figure out how schools were integrating new technologies. And I went to this one charter school in San Diego relatively, relatively soon after Google Docs collaborative writing software had been introduced. Uh, this school was doing some pretty cool things. Like it wasn't just in one teacher's classroom. That's what I was seeing over and over again, all kinds of schools. People would buy tons of technology and you could only go to a couple of places where you'd see something really different. But I went to this school and they, they were able to tell me like across grade levels, across departments, some really different practices around collaborative writing that were getting more students peer editing, more students getting, you know, formative feedback from their teachers, all kinds of good writing stuff that this technology was really innovating. And I said to them, well, what, what do your principals think about all this? Like what's, what's sort of their role? And they were like, oh, I don't think the principal knows what we're doing. I was like, what? The principal doesn't know what you're doing. Um, they were like, yeah, I, I don't, you know, so here, I mean, one of the only schools that I visited where really cool stuff is happening and the teachers are telling me that the school leaders are just like keeping the boilers running or the AC running in San Diego and making the buses run on time and things like that. Um, and it made me recognize. So so I was like, oh, that's really curious. And then I read a paper by a guy named John Diamond um, called Where the Rubber Meets the Road. Um, and it had some survey data from Chicago where they asked teachers, who has the number one influence on your pedagogy or who has influence on your pedagogy? And the overwhelming answer is other teachers. Teachers change their practice in response to other teachers. Probably every school community has a small number of faculty that are willing to learn from consultants, willing to follow top-down directives, willing to um, try new things on their own. But for the vast majority of our educators in our schools, they're what Peter Senge calls patient pragmatists. They're sort of on the fence, waiting for evidence that a thing will work before they really go whole hog. So this has huge implications if you're a school leader. Um, if you want new teaching and learning to happen in your school, you have a peer learning problem. Um, the only way that teachers are going to adopt new practices is if they have a chance to collaborate with, learn from one another. Um, if you're a teacher, you know, the exciting thing about this is, it me is that your leadership is essential. Um, only teachers are the only ones who can actually implement new practices in classrooms. They are the, really the only ones that can spread and scale new innovations widely. And it's really the job of school leaders to figure out how we can make that process happen more joyfully, more efficiently, more enthusiastically, with greater bravery, those kinds of things. It, it's But it's interesting to note, uh, Justin, that you you also came to this through your own practice of teaching and just getting reps in on getting better as a teacher. I think you observed in your own practice that it was the reps um, and the experimentation to make your own practice better. So 
it's a combination of those two things, isn't it? It's sort of getting reps in and doing it in community. Yeah, I had this really unusual first job after college where I taught wilderness medicine. So I taught the classes, like if you were going to be an outdoor, uh, outward bound leader, a Knowles leader, I taught doctors that were heading on missions a couple times. I taught Navy SEALs and, and other kinds of folks. Um, and I taught this two-day class called Wilderness First Aid and a 10-day class called Wilderness First Responder. Um, all of those classes, both of those classes, which I would just teach like over and over again, week after week, had a lesson about uh, what to do if somebody breaks a bone. Um, of, of fractures and other kinds of injuries like that. And I just taught that lesson over and over again, week after week. And every time I taught it, I would change it a little bit. Um, I would move a joke around. I would do the drawing on the blackboard about the what a broken bone looks like inside the body a little differently. Um, one of the things in that lesson is we taught people how to make improvised splints out of stuff in their backpacks. And then we would take them all outside afterwards and we would put like stage makeup on people and make it look like they had broken their leg. And, you know, some people would be out there lying and, and screaming and other people would have to come and, and put an improvised splint on their broken bone. And so, you know, within a two-day course or a short course, I could pretty quickly tell, like if I taught people well, you would look at their splints and be like, yep, those are good splints. That was good instruction. And if they all messed up in some way, you're like, yep, I didn't get it right. There's something wrong here. Um, but I taught that lesson on, you know, improvised splinting in two years. I taught it 75 times or 80 times. You know, there lots of our teachers don't get a chance in a whole career to teach a lesson 75 times or 85 times. You know, you teach it once and then you don't get to come back to it the next year. Um, so a lot of what Iterate is about is thinking about how we can make sure that our instructional improvement plans are not just locked in these like five-year strategic plans or here's a new course, here's a new unit, but like what can we do on Monday that's different there where we can try some kind of new approach and see whether we can keep incrementally getting ourselves towards better practice. So uh, let's let's try to extract a couple leadership lessons here. Um, the, the first one is don't don't assume that you're in charge of this loosely coupled system and that you can dictate uh, with, with an edict uh, a new learning model. That's not how schools actually work because you've probably inherited a loosely coupled system. Um, and, and that real change happens through these cycles of experiment and peer learning. How Give us a couple of specific examples of how leaders support or encourage um, experimentation and peer learning? What conditions do they create? You know, what are you doing to create a budget for experimentation in your school? You have, regardless of what school you've inherited, there's some fraction of teachers in that school who are excited to try new things. There's no school that I've ever visited that doesn't have some of those folks in it. What are the resources that you're giving those folks to make that happen? So who, you know, are there folks who are getting some special releases from courses? Are there people that you're paying over the summer? Um, one of the stories in my book that, that I've always liked um, is the leadership public schools in California. Um, they had this challenge. All their students are Spanish speaking students. Um, they're trying to get them through the California curriculum. They can't get them to take enough uh, math and uh, science classes because they don't have the academic vocabulary to succeed. But if you pull them out of the math and Spanish cl uh, science classes to just teach them academic English, then they don't get enough credits to be able to enroll in the California system. Um, so they said, well, what we really need are textbooks that have academic literacy supports in algebra, in biology, 
Um, nobody's making them. Why don't we pay our, we're going to stop buying textbooks. We're going to pay our teachers over the summer to create some resources using some, some open educational resources that are going to really meet our students' needs. Um, and that worked well. You know, essentially they took their textbook budget and they turned some of that into an innovation budget in a way that really worked. I mean, my, fec- my second favorite story about these things, there's a zillion schools that bought tablets and Chromebooks. I got to just quickly underscore leadership. Um, So Louise Waters at Leadership, she's a great example of your principal. She, across her school system, she created distributed and collaborative innovation agenda. So each school took on a set of experiments that collectively added up to a bold R&D agenda. But everybody didn't try everything. They, they, They volunteered for, framed up, took on different parts of the agenda. So I think that might be an example of what you're suggesting of how leaders across the system can um, can create and foster innovation, but do it in a way that adds up to something bigger and better. Yeah, that they, that they have a trajectory that that whole system is working on. And because everybody in the system has some agreement about what the trajectory is, you can do a bunch of smaller experiments you know, a sad thing that happens, there's experiments all the time in American schools. A sad thing about them is that they don't improve more than an individual teacher's classroom. We have all kinds of teachers that are doing cool stuff on their own. But what we want is that to roll up into improvements in grade level teams, improvements in departments. And you have to have some coherence, some shared instructional language, some shared values to make that happen. You know, design is all about balancing tensions. Um, You need to have individual people who are doing really cool things but also you need to have some structure around that innovation so that those really cool small things are adding up. Um, I mean, another thing I like about what you just described is if, if part of probably what's happening there is taking the innovation agenda and breaking up into small parts, A, so that no one feels like there's a huge lift on their own piece, but B, so that small things can fail. Um, you know, I mean, if you talk to my colleagues in MIT, a a big thing we talk about is just managing inevitable failure. Lots of things that we try don't work. And so we have to keep early stages of experimentation, innovation, iteration light enough that we can try a thing and go, yep, didn't work, on to the next. Um, if the things that we try are so heavy, we're so invested in that we can't give them up, um, then that's when we get stuck kind of pursuing things that, that aren't working longer than we ought to. Uh, just a quick addition around failure. Yes, yes to failure. And when we're talking about schools, um, I, I know other people you've talked to have, have worried about failure, meaning some meaning things getting worse. A, a thoughtful innovation agenda can mean you're trying to get step function improvement. And the failure is I didn't get the step function improvement, but a thoughtful innovation carried out and supported well not likely to make things dramatically worse. Um, well, also, we have unsystematic innovation every day in schools. You, there are very few teachers out there that go and do exactly what they did last year. The problem is they do it in a way that we're not learning whether or not it's actually improving what we're doing. So some of what we're trying to do here is just capture a whole bunch of that unsystematic variation and say, let's let's do it together. Let's do it in a framework. Let's do it in a way that we're not just like, oh, I'm going to try a new lesson this week 
but like I've, I have a little hypothesis. This is what I think it, this better approach will do. And here's what some evidence would look like if it was working. Here's what some evidence would look like if it's not working. Here's how I'm going to communicate what I'm doing and learning with my colleagues so that if I do do a thing that works, they can help me make it better. They can pick up some parts of it on their own. Um, yeah, it's, you know, the, like the, the innovation and the iteration, the experimentation, it's already there. It's, ha it's happening every day. It's about pulling a bunch of that together and about helping teachers uh, take those uh, instincts they have and to be even better about conducting those experiments. The second part of your book suggests that design thinking is really an important mindset and toolkit strategy uh, set uh, for running these cycles of, of innovation. Why is design thinking important? And maybe give us an example of what that uh, might look like in practice. So design thinking is one framework. There are lots of frameworks out there for how you try new things better in a more systematic way. Design thinking is just one of them. Um, There's an article that came out in the Atlantic a few years ago, which is something like, is design thinking just a new buzzword in education? And I was like, I understand why people would say that, but like, if you hang out at MIT with you know engineers, social scientists, business folks, we're doing stuff that looks like design thinking all the time. We say like, what's the smallest possible way we could test that idea? What's the prototype we could make? How can we put that prototype into the world? How can we test whether or not it's working for the things that aren't working? How do we get rid of them for the things that are working? How do we build on them and get them to grow? Um, so, you know, a lot of times in school improvement, I describe it as a someday Monday dilemma. Um, we want big, exciting changes in schools, and there is no teacher that has the time to implement for next week big, exciting changes in schools. They have the time to do something different on Monday. So we have to figure out, like, what's the sort of smallest version of that new idea that we can realistically try next week and have that experiment inform our improvement efforts and build towards bigger kinds of things. So design thinking is a toolkit that helps us be a little bit more systematic about experimentation and innovation and iteration than we might be otherwise. Justin, your book in some ways is, a, is an ed tech book that doesn't mention ed tech. Uh, I mean, ed tech over the last 40 years have been software and hardware and connectivity that, that have come into our opportunity set and allowed us to go, oh, we could do things differently. Um, you don't address it straight on, but th this is really a, a guidebook that would help communities make better use of technology. Is that fair? Well, the, the, the signature innovation that I was interested in working on the ideas in this book was education technology. I spent a whole bunch of years, I developed, the, I co-founded this consultancy called EdTech Teacher and schools would buy a zillion dollars worth of computers and software and tablets and whatever else. And we would try to help them translate that investment into real meaningful learning gains. Um, and the challenge we ran into over and over again is that people bought stuff a lot of times without a clear plan for how it would improve learning. Um, they had a little bit of instruction about how to click the buttons and not a lot of instruction about teaching and learning. And we found what I thought were some pretty good ways, especially of nurturing environments of peer learning, of saying, you're going to have people who figure things out. But if you want your whole grade level team, you want your whole school to get better, it can't just be one teacher in the seventh grade science classroom that makes collaborative writing work. That teacher has to have supports to share what they're learning with the other science teachers, with the other seventh grade teachers. That was what was happening in the places where teaching and learning was really improving. But I don't think there's there are that many things that are in, that are 
particularly distinctive about education technology as an innovation. Um, you might want to make a core knowledge curriculum be your innovation. You might want to have stuff about better reading instruction being your innovation. And there are certain parts of the playbook that are really pretty similar. Of course, they're distinctive to all those different pieces. But um, if you don't have people have some shared instructional language, set of shared values, it's unlikely they're going to be able to work together well. Um, you can't take any innovation and walk into a faculty room and be like, okay, team, we're all going to do it this way. And then have all your teachers throw their hands up in the air and be like, yeah, we're going to do it this way. That's just not what happens in schools. You got to get small groups of people at the sort of tip of the innovation spear, trying things and sharing with each other. So I want to, I want to try to push on this idea and try to figure out how do you both, as you're suggesting, encourage the bottom up um, experimentation and recognizing that technology uh, in the in the corporate sector, technology is usually deployed top down in phases, enterprise strategy, and it links um, it links hardware and software and training in sort of a lockstep set of, of phases, um, and it requires a lot of capital investment. So, how if you are going to encourage bottom up investment, how do you provision technology? to support that so that you get hardware, software, and connectivity in real time to support this bottom-up innovation. That's it feels like a leadership challenge. Yeah, I, I like that question. I think that really highlights a kind of interesting tension. I mean, there were a lot of schools and still are schools that as they make technology investments, they don't make big system-wide platform changes all at once. Um, they test and experiment with those things in smaller places. They say, all right, we're going to put some resources behind some experimentation here where there's a school, there's a department, there's a grade, there's a group of people who are excited to try that. And then when we've seen how this can work, when we see whether or not it actually works, like, oh, look, this is an investment that's actually going to improve learning outcomes for students. This is going to make instruction better. Then we're going to try to get larger and wider adoption. Um, almost always pitching those big changes as a technology innovation is not the best way to rope in faculty to that work. Um, it can be in some places, but a lot of faculty will say, Techno technology is extra work. Technology is an additional thing I have to do. What I actually really care about is improve, improving literacy and numeracy and helping my students make better arguments um, in helping them you know, be better global citizens, whatever it is. If we can say, okay, this is a goal that we've all agreed about. These are the most important learning goals that we have for our students and that's our North Star. And what's going to help us get there better is technology. Then faculty see technology as a tool, as an aid, as a resource to a thing they already care about, rather than a new initiative that's on top of everything else that we're doing. A lot of my consulting with schools was just saying like, okay, it's great that you're buying this stuff, but like, what are the most important learning goals that you have? And are you able to connect these big investments in technology to those most important learning goals? That's a bit about what the third part of the book is about, the cycle of collaborative innovation, is how do we, how do we again, iterate our way towards shared values, shared instructional language that lets us do big things. And they're going to, you know, you're absolutely, I mean, technology is a great example of a thing that has to have some kind of top-down component um, because someone has to write a big check at some point. Um, but that top-down component has to mesh with the reality. 
Um, you know, in my, in my uh, MIT classes today, I have what I refer to as the smart board generation. I ask my, um, you know, 19, 20 year old students to tell me their ed tech story. And they say like, there's this moment in middle school where we rolled in all of these electronic whiteboards and teachers did nothing with them and they shoved them in the corner and we just wrote on them. You know, they're sort of keenly aware of this kind of distinctive nationwide failure to invest wisely. Justin, uh, this this makes me think of um, our our partner here at Getting Smart, Rebecca Middles, in a, in a number of districts has pioneered a an invitational approach where you you frame up a change effort and then you invite schools based on their readiness uh, to enter into that um, change effort, which includes a bunch of provisioning for technology and learning resources, but but schools have the optionality to, to do some shaping and then signal readiness when they're when they're ready to move. And it, it feels like some version of that or a portfolio approach where you're inviting schools to work in groups together on an agenda and then provisioning a, a portfolio, some version of that would match resources and strategy. But it's complicated, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's really complicated. You know, and the thing that I try to, as people are thinking about all those things, you know, part of what I think Iterate invites folks to do is to say, in the, not only do you have to make all those complex decisions, but in the end, it's only going to matter if teachers in classrooms make different instructionalist decisions with the students that they're with. And the number one way that they will make different instructional decisions is that they observe their peers making different instructional decisions that are helping their students, that they learn from their colleagues, oh, this was a thing, you know, in a classroom that looks like mine, in a place that looks like mine, that really works and is improving. Um, so as, you know, as complicated as it is at the sort of 30,000 foot view of how do you provision resources across multiple schools, it will only make a difference if we then zeroes down in to individual classroom teachers. You know, there's somebody who's teaching Mandarin that's got to figure out how these new ideas apply to teaching Mandarin. And there's somebody else who's teaching seventh grade earth science who's got to figure out how these ideas apply to plate tectonics and meteorology. Um, Justin, let me, I want to reread this, this beautiful sentence. You talked about leadership starts with understanding, honoring, respecting what people have already accomplished. Remember Max Dupree, leadership starts with thank you, starts and ends with thank you. Uh, so recognizing what they've accomplished and then helping them come together around ideas that will take their work forward. So for me, that is, that's the, that is agreement crafting, right? It's, it's hosting the conversation, acknowledging where they've come from, and then, facilitating a set of agreements that move them forward. Does that sound right? Yeah, there, there are agreements uh, um, that build on strengths. So one of the things we want to do is, you know, when we're trying to get better, we want to say, we can't, we, we, we got to recognize the things that are broken. We're not doing a good job at, but, but we're going to, when we fix stuff and get better, it's probably because we build on our strengths. Your, um, your questions of innovation are really good at that. You suggest for these four questions, what's the signature strength of your school? What's the most important learning goals? Uh, what's the major initiatives that you have going on? What are the promising areas? Those are really strength-based questions that a school then could build a, a new set of agreements on, right? I did, I did it at Lehigh University last month. Um, they were working on some new competency-based things. And, and I said, let's, let's ask these questions and think about how we're going to improve. There's a piece in there that I also learned from Peter Senge, who's a colleague of mine at MIT, which says the, the agreement is about kind of 
outcomes. The agreement is about some things to try. It's not agreement about everything. Um, if you go watch a group of basketball players do an amazing job as a team together, they don't agree about everything about basketball and things that are not related to basketball. They have all kinds of disagreements about if you watch a, a really beautiful set of dancers or a really powerful orchestra, they don't all agree, but they have enough agreement about enough things to do some things together. So I think, you know, one risk of agreement is being hung up on do we all have to believe the same thing? Do we all have to have the exact same theory of change? Do we all have to have the same values? No, and you will not achieve that. Um, what you want is like enough consensus in a moment. The, uh, the other thing is to not put agreement before doing. The way you get people to have more consensus is you do stuff together. And the only way you can do stuff together is to start before you have that consensus. That made me smile. It is. It's a. There's a little bit of paradox there, but um, I, I appreciate that. The, the learn by doing. Don't don't be paralyzed in in creating an agreement. That's tricky uh, to find that balance of. of well, it's, well it's, you think of it as an iterative process. You know, you sort of invite your community to say, let's find some things that we have some agreement on. Let's move forward on those. We're not going to agree about everything that happens here. We're not going to all have the same theory of change, but we're not going to, we're not going to, A, we're not going to get to agreement and we're not going to make improvements by sitting around here talking about this forever. Um, if, you know, if we have some things that we disagree about on theory of change, like you think that this is going to really work in the departments, I think it's going to really work um, with a self-selected group of teachers. How do we build experiments that test both of those hypotheses? How do we say, you try your thing in this way and I'm going to try my I think in this way, and we're both going to help each other do that. And, you know, we'll see if there's some evidence that helps us um, gain ground and move forward. So, Justin, your your book felt um, it it's it came off to me as being pretty faculty centric about getting a, a faculty moving in, in a right direction. I guess my question is, when and how do you bring the community into that dialogue about moving forward, especially if you're doing that transformational work in community where you're trying to take a community from here to a different place. At what point does a, a broader community need to be part of that dialogue and party to an agreement to enter into innovation? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a fair observation because for me, um, you know, it's what happens in individual classrooms that is all, that's like the arbiter of whether or not students learn, but you're absolutely right. And there are parts of the book um, that say, um, you know, as we're going to try and test new things, um, are we only testing them? You know, I mean, the thing I saw all the time in education technology, are we just going to try them in AP and honors classes or are we going to really do them everywhere? Um, if we're going to try to do something different with homework, with out of school time, are we really involving all the parents, all the different community members, including community members that are historically harder for us to reach, harder for us to communicate with, if they don't have a seat at the design table in some ways, then we're not going to learn from their insights um, and we're going to make mistakes that could be avoided if we included them more. So there's part of design thinking that historically I think has done a really good job. Some people call it empathize. We call it the discover phase of trying to figure out like, all right, if we're going to try new things, have we really talked to our students? Have we really talked to our community members about what those new things might look like? Um, and then, you know, certainly when we talk about bringing people together around ideas they care about, the faculty is incredibly important to that, but community is important, staff's important, um, all kinds of folks are, are important for that. We're talking to Dr. Justin Reich, uh, MIT prof, um, ED at the MIT Teaching 
Systems Lab and author of a great new book called Iterate, The Secret to Innovate in Schools. Um, if people want to know more about the book, where can they find it? Where can they pre-order it? You can go to iteratebook.com, which will give you a bunch of links to pre-order the book. And also, if you pre-order the book and you fill out a little survey at iteratebook.com, I'll invite you to a free online course that I'm running in October. And I will also send you a really cute book plate that's signed that you can stick uh, inside the book that you've pre-ordered. Uh, Iterate has some really beautiful illustrations by a terrific artist named Haley McDevitt. Um, and uh, I think they really make the book uh, quite fun to read. And we're making all the, the illustrations in the book, all of the, um, the characters, the frameworks um, available under a Creative Commons license so that school leaders can use them in presentations and workshops and other kinds of things like that. Justin's also author of Failure to Disrupt Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. It's a great book uh, out in 2020. Justin, I've, I've been a big fan of your writing about education R&D for, I don't know, at least 15 years. And it's been a real treat to talk with you today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Right back at you. Is, is, there, is there somebody that, uh, one or two people that, that uh, helped you on this, on this journey that you want to give a shout out to? Who, who really contributed to some of the lessons in this book? Well, um, I certainly am always very grateful to the person that I co-founded EdTech Teacher with, Tom DeCord. Um, and one of my favorite things about working with Tom DeCord is that we always thought about problems differently. Um, Tom is a real part to whole kind of thinker. He's someone who loves to get into the weeds of things. And I'm sort of more of a whole to part thinker. I love to think about sort of how the whole system works. And um, I've always been grateful in my career for, for people like Tom who, uh, who are generous with their time, generous with their wisdom, and also tackle problems intuitively differently than I do. Because when we partner with people who think differently, we learn a lot. And what a treat working with, uh, working with Senge. That, that had to be. It was a treat. You know, the cool, I mean, the cool thing about Peter Senge is that he's worked in like a zillion different um, fields. And so you'll say something like, man, I think teachers in education is really like this. And Peter will go, no, no, no. Human beings who work in firms are really like this. Like, you know what? I mean, a core thing in education is that people don't feel like they're empowered to tackle big problems. Um, they don't feel like they're empowered to make change. And Peter's like, everyone in every firm doesn't feel like they're empowered to make change. CEOs don't feel like they're empowered to make change sometimes. Um, but change happens when people say, well, it's not really my job and I'm not empowered to do it, but I think I could make things better if I, if I start working on these uh, kinds of changes and that, uh, um, and that's what makes the world better. Uh, Pre-order Iterate. What's it, the, the link again? The Iteratebook.com. All one word. Iteratebook.com. Uh, Justin Reich, thanks again for your contribution. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Uh, thanks, as always, to our producer, Mason Pasha, and the whole Getting Smart team that makes this possible. Until next week, keep learning, keep leading, and keep iterating for equity. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. 
Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 